Hello and welcome to the Driven by Diversity podcast. I'm Mariana. And I'm Steph. And every week we shine the spotlight on underrepresented groups in the world of racing. Our guests share their journey into the sport and also delve into what diversity and inclusion means to them. We hope that we can provide you with real role models who you can relate to and who represent you. And more than that, that you'll feel inspired and encouraged to know that you can make it in motorsport, no matter your background. The Driven by Diversity podcast returns for a second season and who better to help us kick things off than a familiar face on the motorsport broadcast and presenting scene. Covering Formula One and Formula Two, our guest has travelled to various Grand Prix over the last few years, interviewing some of the sport's biggest stars as well as iconic VIP celebs. She also works with the Mercedes F1 team to host their digital video content. However, you may be surprised to learn that her original ambition was actually to become a newsreader. Her broadcast journalism masters acted as the catalyst that would start her on, at times, a twisting and turning career path, but the dots finally started to align when she landed a presenting job with YouTube channel Pole Position. Keen to inspire the next generation, this broadcaster has had involvement with organisations such as F1 in Schools and Dare to be Different, and is now ambassador for the FIA Girls on Track programme. Guest yet? Joining us is Rosanna Tennant. Thank you for joining us, Rosanna, and helping us launch season two. How are you and how are you finding the off-season from Formula One? Thank you so much for asking me to be on the podcast. Huge privilege. I can't believe it's finally 2021 because we spoke, Ariana, about this back at the end of 2020 when you were visiting Formula One's Media and Technology Centre and suddenly 2021 is upon us. And you ask how I am. Um, Obviously, we're recording this fairly shortly after all the announcements about Britain being put down into a lockdown. And um, I am fine, I would say. I am trying to stay positive, find silver linings wherever they may be. And of course, it's normal that at this time of year, it's a bit quieter because it's the Formula One winter break. But sometimes that allows the opportunity to travel, to see friends and family. And of course, that it's taken on a slightly different look Mm. um, for this January and February. So just I'm adapting. I'm trying to be very accepting of the situation and things like this obviously are keeping me occupied, very happy and giving me things to, to think about and enjoy. Good. Yeah, I feel like that's all we can do at the moment, right? We've just got to keep plodding along and trying to adjust to everything that gets thrown our way. But uh, thank you for joining us. And in the off season, typically, what do you get up to? Is it completely switch off from Formula One for you? Or is it a period where you're planning for what might be coming ahead? Well, I do a bit of work with the Mercedes MG Petronas Formula One team as well, alongside my kind of commitments to Formula One. So often the season finishes and then very spoilingly, I'm then taken to Malaysia or somewhere around the world with Mercedes, because of course they've done a lot of winning over the last few years (laughs) to celebrate with Petronas. So often kind of we finish in Abu Dhabi and then off I go to do some some lovely filming and some celebration work with the team. Uh, And then of course it's Christmas and New Year. um, And then generally January is quite quiet for me so I try and take a little bit of a holiday Um, and then sort of end of January beginning of February all the planning starts again with um, especially with my work with Mercedes a lot of talk about the launch for the team what that might look like with their sort of shakedown plans Um, and for the last few years obviously that's been at Silverstone I've been very lucky to host it and to be the drivers and to be a real part of that Um, so yeah in the last few years the off-season hasn't been super restful so actually (laughs) what coronavirus has taken away it has given me a little bit of off time and uh, I'm one that um, likes to have a lot to do and so I find myself writing to-do lists every day even though there's not really much to do Um, so yeah it's it's usually a quiet time and uh, definitely a little bit quieter in 2021 it feels like. So a lot of our listeners will know you mostly from your presenting work with Formula One. And as you say there, your work with Mercedes presenting with them as well. But talk to us about your journey into motorsport and how you actually got here. 
Well, I have to say I'm a tiny bit of a fraud because um, when I was younger, I was going to say little, but I've never been little at six foot two. Um, <laughs> but I was little once, but I grew very fast. Um, I always wanted to be a newsreader. And that was my sort of boring tale I would tell anyone that would listen. So um, newsreader was where I was sort of heading for, what I was focusing on. Um, and so I did French and Spanish um, as an undergraduate degree at Durham University. Then I knew that to really kind of get a foot in the door in the broadcasting world, I'd need to do um, a master's in broadcast journalism. So that was then where I made my choice to go to City University. And all the while it was still kind of focused on newsreader, newsreader, newsreader. And then off the back of City, we were introduced to lots of amazing broadcasters, independent, um, you know, BBC, Sky, all sorts came and spoke to us. And I got in touch with Sky um, shortly after their sort of presentation to us. And they offered me a couple of weeks unpaid working out at Osterley, being a guest producer. I was working in um, a restaurant, doing lots of shifts, trying to cover all the costs at the same time. Uh, you have to be kind of super determined to get uh, where you want to be. And so you've got to do whatever you've got to do, um, the pennies. Um, and it was while I was at Sky, and those two weeks became four and then they became six. And then they unfortunately became, you've got to leave because we can't pay you, you can't stay any longer. <laughs> while I was there, really kindly I, I moved on to the Sky News sports desk and one of the producers turned around and said Rosanna um, tomorrow go with John Desborough to uh, the Hilton on Park Lane Jensen Button's going to be doing an appearance um, and you're going to stand and watch John and he'll be like changing tires interviewing Jensen Sterling Moss is going to be there so I was like oh, great thanks so much and my first thought was oh, my brother he should be the one that goes. My brother is mad on F1. And I was like, oh. this is not fair. He, it should be him that's going, not me. And I thought, hang on a second. No, no, no. Need to further the career. Come on. Off <laughs> so I remember walking out of the tube at Hyde Park Corner and walking up Park Lane thinking, well, this is pretty cool. Um, and I stood and I watched John Desborough and he changed the tyre. And I still know John now. And we've worked alongside each other a little bit in World Rally as well, subsequently. And I remember thinking, oh, that, that's actually quite cool. Like, that's something I could quite like to do like news reading is amazing but you know maybe presenting would be quite cool too and while I was there I got chatting to somebody who ran or still runs um, a sports marketing agency and a sponsorship agency and he sort of said you know when you're finished at Sky come work with us and um, I sort of said you know oh thank you so much that's so kind of you um, but yeah gonna be at Sky for a bit longer <laughs> anyway <laughs> next week I had to ring the guy I was like job offer is it still uh, <laughs> pending for me so I went in and had a chat with him but it was bizarre because it could have been the producer at Sky you know it was so kind of him to, to let me leave the office and go out with a presenter on site and on location it could have been Rosanna can you go and shadow the swimming correspondent or the curling correspondent it could have been anyone and it just happened mm. to be a motorsport and a Formula One um, filming day and of course, it then just happened to be a sports marketing agency that specialised in Formula One, sailing and cycling. And so very kindly, that man, Stuart Dybel, uh, gave me a chance um, just as a sales executive. So bringing up people, cold calling, trying to find sponsorship for different sporting properties. And that was at Influence Sports. And I worked with them for six months. And sorry, very long winded story, but basically just showing that I didn't really want to go into motorsport as such I wouldn't have said no and obviously I didn't mm. say no but it wasn't somewhere that I was actively seeking out a role um and that's just kind of the moral of the story on that one I guess is just like yeah sure I'll go obviously once I got <laughs> over the fact that it should have been my brother who would have enjoyed it more at that time <laughs> um, but yeah just kind of seizing any opportunity and it just happened to be very fortunately motorsport that um I was introed and that was back in 2011 the summer of 2011 just after my master's your brother must absolutely love how involved you are now and having someone so close well, and involved. <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird. So um, that was in 2011 when I got that amazing opportunity that, that day with with John and Sky and Jensen. Um, and then I then spent six months with that sponsorship agency and then got to the point where I was a bit like, oh, OK, the broadcasting dream is still alive. I definitely still want to be telling stories on camera, be it or, or on radio, it could have been any. Mm -hmm. um, but I knew that selling sponsorship wasn't probably going to get me there. And so I yeah. looked around for some other jobs and I got approached, um, a little reference again to my height here, I went to a rugby evening at Oliver Sweeney. And while I was getting my coat at the end of the evening, it was sort of um, three of the World Cup winners um, were talking to us and it was a wonderful evening. And 
giving us their anecdotes from 2003. And um, when I went to get my coat at the end of the evening, one of the men running the event came to me and he said, oh, you're very tall. And I was like, oh, yes, I am. Yes, yes, yes. And he said, I only say it really because I run Oliver Sweeney, but I also run a company called Long Tall Sally. So I was like, oh, okay, I know Long Tall Sally. I got my pyjamas from Long Tall Sally. <laughs> Clue is in the name. It's for tall girls in the shop. And um, anyway, I wrote a thank you letter to him after the evening saying, thank you so much. Really enjoyed the evening. Let me know if there's anything I can do to help with Long Tall Sally. Secretly thinking, maybe I get a free pair of trousers. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, anyway, <laughs> you'd never know. And um, he replied saying, um, you can't help us with Long Tall Sally at the moment, but we'd love you to come and have a chat with us about Oliver Sweeney. So I was like, okay, that's weird. So I went and had a chat with them. Anyway, they offered me a job um, working as their marketing assistant. And so at this point, again, the broadcasting dream just seemed to get further and further away. And I was thinking, well, how on earth is this gonna keep me in the right direction? And actually, this is quite weird. On my wall, I have this thing from uh, Steve Jobs, uh, who in the commencement speech, I think for Stanford, here we go, getting a bit academic now. Um, <laughs> he says, because believing that the dots will connect down the road will give you the confidence to follow your heart, even when it leads you off the well-worn path. And so it was at that point where I was like, I'm going to go work for a men's clothing and shoe brand. Ah, that's one path. The broadcasting path is definitely another. And yet, bills to pay, I need food to eat, um, I need to be able to afford to get the tube to work, all those sort of things. So I think I need a job, you know, it was going to be earning a little bit more money than I was earning when I was selling the sponsorship. I just thought, oh, I'm going to take it, I'm going to take it, I can make it, I can make it something, I can make it something, I'm sure. Anyway, so very kindly, they offered me the job, I took the job, and while I was Oliver Sweeney, I decided to set up a thing called Oliver Sweeney Meets, and I think it's something quite a lot of brands do now, but back in 2012, not many people were doing it, and it was obviously the year of the Olympics. So London 2012 rolls into town and Oliver Sweeney had a really good relationship with a lot of athletes. So we did a lot of work with the Olympians. I would go and interview them, take the photographer for the brand and we would film a little interview. I could practice my interview questions. I'd write a blog, we'd get nice pictures and we'd give them a pair of shoes. So I kind of felt, okay, I'm kind of scratching that itch of the broadcasting. I'm improving my interviewing. I'm trying my best um, to keep the dream alive. Anyway, so I lasted about 10 months there um, until the old boss at the old company, Alistair Watkins, who just happens to be Professor Sid Watkins' son, um, rang me up and said, we're in talks with YouTube and Google. They're investing in something they're calling original programming. They've done a lot in football. They're creating a lot of content, uh, channels like Kick TV. The next step is going to be motorsport. And again, this could have been any channel. They could have been, it could have been yeah. a sailing channel. It could have been a cycling channel. And he said, you know, you used to go on about wanting to be on camera. You still keen? <laughs> yeah, I'm still keen. I'm still keen. I'm here interviewing people with a free pair of shoes. Of course, I'm still keen. <laughs> um, so really kindly, he set me up with a little interview with um, the guys at YouTube. And I have to say, I was incredibly nervous because I don't really fit the YouTuber mold. Um, and I was really panicked that they weren't going to like the cut of my jib, shall we say. And so I was a little bit nervous. So I went along, had a chat. Anyway, very sweetly, they thought it would work. So we launched Pole Position at the end of 2012, beginning of 2013. And that was where I then got the presenting gig. So yeah, a very key, well, a lot of key moments and it's weird. And that's why the Steve Jobs thing kind of always makes me mm. really kind of sit up and, and take off of everything. Because I always think, you know, all those little opportunities, actually all the dots join up when you look backwards. And I remember- yeah certain things have happened subsequently and my dad I remember having a conversation with him and him saying oh darling you know those shoe shop days are behind you and I was like you know do you know what though daddy <laughs> the, the classic is that if that hadn't happened I wouldn't be where yeah. I am now and I think it sounds very fatalistic quite cliche but actually all those moments where you have to make the sort of decision of which path you're going to take it's so daunting at the time but it's such a lovely feeling to think actually do you know what this is all happening for a reason and if mm -hmm. I take and it's I have to caveat that with I think as long as you give your best and give your all and work really hard at each juncture after taking each junction and taking each direction then hopefully you can make the best of it and it will come good mm. and, and you will find your way back to maybe that main yeah. main path you just got to trust that those little tributaries and different diversions will get you back on track eventually so I think that's a super important thing to to make 
people aware of. So for example, if you have a dream like you had with broadcasting, but you know, you feel like you might be falling off the off the track a bit and you know you're you're not quite getting to where you want to be, it, it doesn't matter because as you say, everything that you do all adds up into, you know, your experience that you can take in as long as you keep the dream alive and keep that goal in mind and clear and always strive to, you know, make paths to get there. If you want it enough, you'll you'll get it as you've proven so yeah exactly it's so so important and you just mustn't lose sight of it and it, it, it mm-hmm. sounds harsh to say but if you want it enough the people that don't want it enough will fall away eventually yeah. and that's mm-hmm. not to say you're going to get it just because you're the last man standing or last woman standing or you know it, it's not just that but I, I do feel that you know if you want it enough you will do everything in your power to make it happen you just have to work hard for it so um it's it's daunting though because when you're at school or you're at uni and you're sort of thinking ahead like god it's a big mountain to climb just know that those little steps each one it's just getting you a little bit closer and the other thing that I think it's sort of engendered in us for so long at school you know each year you take exams and mm-hmm. back in my day we had AS as well I think they've gone now um but you know GCSE AS A level are you going to go straight to uni how many years are you going to do at uni will you then do a master's will you then do a different sort of extra degree that helps you it's constantly every single year you've got to be moving on and up there's this sort of weird feeling that it's always got to be a progression mm-hmm. and I sometimes say to people not that I do any sort of life coaching or anything but sometimes friends you know all a bit panicked you know what's next year looking like I was thinking you know sometimes consolidation is as good as progress because yeah I think because we've been on that sort of treadmill always thinking that the next year should bring you something different something extra another challenge sometimes if it's not looking like that you can feel oh, it's a bit of a failure I haven't really haven't really stepped on you know what would my report card say if it was school maybe I wouldn't be moving on a year but actually it's quite good you're gonna think no I need to get better at this I've got another few years here and it might be a few years that I've got to to be at this level but then that will mean I can make the jump when it's the the right time so yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure, I think, on on everybody. And it's not just in the motorsport industry or the broadcasting industry. I think that's across the board. So I think, Definitely. yeah, sometimes just to being a bit bit kinder on yourself to think, oh, I've done well to get where I am already. Do you know what? <laughs> Absolutely. It's important to look back as well as looking forward and acknowledge how far you have come. Mm. You touched on the broadcast journalism masters that you did there. How important do you feel that was to helping you progress through your career and getting you on that path towards your goal? I feel um, that Masters was incredible. I often say it was sort of like just pretending I was on telly and radio for a year. It was a very (laughs) practical degree. Um, It was very, very useful as well. We did media law as well. And there were two options when I was looking at Masters. It was Cardiff University or City University. And um, I have to say, sort of tracing everything back, City has been hugely instrumental in where I then have managed to to kind of navigate um, through and to. I wouldn't have been introduced to the Sky News guys. I wouldn't have therefore had all those opportunities that I've spoken about. I feel incredibly lucky and privileged that I went there. It is not, um, it's not a cheap course. It's not, um, it's very, very competitive to get on it. Um, Funny story, actually, in my interview for that, you had to stand up in front of the class or, you know, the people who were going for the place against, and you had to say something about yourself. My idea of hell. Um, <laughs> and um, I followed this girl. She'd spoken about how she'd been doing some journalism in Africa and it all just sounded wonderful, very, very high powered. She was super intelligent. And I walked up to the desk and it's in this auditorium, like a lecture hall. And I already, not my idea of he- heaven being in a lecture hall, went to sit down and I went, gosh, how do you follow that? And as I sat down, my bum clipped the edge of the wheelie chair that I was aiming for and it shot backwards and I was left in a squat holding my little piece of paper, which is already sweat ridden because I was so nervous. And honestly, the whole place erupted. Thank God they all found it funny. And um, the woman who was kind of examining us went, well, I think you just did follow that. I was like, oh my gosh. That was the first moment uh, at City University and a lot of people haven't forgotten that. But I have to say it was an amazing degree. So if anyone listening to this is considering doing a master's in broadcast journalism or television journalism, there were lots of different ones when I was applying. I think they've slightly altered it, obviously, to reflect the state of the industry now. I think print Mm. maybe is not so at the forefront anymore. I think there's a lot more online. Um, I would highly, highly recommend it. Um, Do everything in your power if you've got to, you know, do several jobs at the same time to afford it then I definitely recommend that I was waitressing a lot um it's a a really good course and I think just starts your the little sort of book of connections a little black book I think it kind of helps helps early doors in your career definitely 
That sounds fantastic in how hands-on it, it sounds as well, because a lot of, sort of courses at university, it's a lot of theory-based learning, so you don't quite get the sort of the vocational side of it. Um, so that sounds brilliant, to be honest. But staying on the path very briefly on education, you mentioned that your undergrad was in languages. So like me, you studied French and Spanish. Um, oh, I know, yes. Si, si, oui, oui, oui. I know that I think it was with pole position, you had actually used some of your Spanish in some of the videos uh, with some of the interviews. Do you find that now with your work with Formula One, that you get the opportunity to use your languages in any capacity? And do you find that having studied languages, uh, you know, it's a benefit to you in your career? I definitely chose languages um, at university because I knew it wasn't going to shut any doors. There was no kind of, it wasn't just going to pigeonhole me. If I wanted to do law or if I'd wanted to be a doctor, obviously you have to take the right kind of choices and, and do the right subjects. Yeah. But I felt I wasn't mad keen on going to university, but I thought, look, I love languages love talking and communicating um so always good to have more languages to do it in um <laughs> so I don't think it has closed any doors whatsoever I think in actual fact when I applied or applied I emailed Formula One and said you know any chance you might have any spaces the first reply was oh we're full with um for British talent right now so oh so I replied and I said well I speak French and Spanish if that's of any interest and then the email came back. I was like, oh, actually, could you come to testing? That'd be quite interesting. And I did interviews in Spanish and French. And I subsequently done some of the fan forums I do in Spanish or French. I interview some of the drivers in French and Spanish. It doesn't happen a lot. But um, if I if I need to, I can. It's just that classic case of not practicing enough. So I go from like yeah. hero to not even a hero. It's literally like, <laughs> uh, like, could you just quickly run and do the fan forum in French? Oh, hang on a second. Yeah, it's actually quite specific you. vocabulary. It's yes. not just like, please, not have a strawberry ice cream. Yeah, um, it's <laughs> quite specialist. So I feel the stress already. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my heart's already beating. Just about it, stepping out in front of quite a large crowd in these amazing fan forums that F1 put on. I'm thinking, how do you say, like, put your hands together for in French? <laughs> so, yeah, it's all those kind of phrases. But um, it has been really useful. And I have to say, I mean, I'm very, very low down on the amount of languages I speak in that paddock because everybody is multilingual. And that's not to say you can't be successful in Formula One if you don't speak a language, but it certainly helps. I mean, look at the spread of drivers. We have lots of different languages, lots of different nationalities, lots of different manufacturers and brands and all coming from different countries around the world. So if you have any sort of um, skill or talent or just aptitude for languages I really really recommend maybe just adding it to your subjects you know my brother uh did economics and Spanish and that's been really helpful so yeah he has worked in Formula One now just to let you know so that's the, that's the link <laughs> there we go <laughs> good for him too <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> you don't have to have any guilt about that now <laughs> no and the best thing is you know our pet, we definitely do not own a Formula One team my family have no connections in Formula One so uh, we both managed to get there did you do any um did you do any work experience or bits and bobs like that as well to help you on your journey into the presenting and broadcasting side of things? Yeah, it's been a case of just every single holiday was really, every school holiday, every uni holiday was trying to do something that would further my, it was really my hobby, which is mm -hmm. lovely now, because I would say I, you know, lucky enough to kind of work in my hobby. Um, but it was, I didn't find it a chore, but it just meant my holidays were often quite busy doing things like, you know, working at a newspaper, working at mm -hmm. a radio. So I worked at Kent on Sunday, which was a, paper I don't think it actually exists anymore but I remember going in and just saying hi could I possibly do some time with you guys um sounds like I'm going to prison can I do some time <laughs> working with you guys and um and I went in and I yeah found some stories in the local area and I went off I went and got interviews and wrote up the copy and that was absolutely great so that was really useful off the back of city we also got introduced to the BBC so I sent a few emails tried to get in touch with um BBC Southeast, because I'm from Kent originally. So spent some time with BBC Radio Kent, BBC Southeast. But yeah, it's you're doing that all at the same time as, you know, whatever it might be, babysitting, nannying, waitressing. Um, there, there is a lot that you're having to spit in if that is really what you want to do. Looking back over your career within motorsport, have there been any points that particularly stand out to you as highlights and things that you look back on and you're actually like, that was 
amazing and unbelievable. I'm sure there's an abundance of them because you've had such a great career, but are there any specific ones that really stick out in your mind? I have had such a lovely time. My goodness me, if it all stopped um, tonight or tomorrow, then I would be very, very happy with the time that I have spent in the Formula One paddock and in the motorsport world um, more generally. I think um, some highlights for me, I think early on when I started working with F1 directly, I remember being approached to do the driver's parade, which um, for people who perhaps don't watch the, the pre-show element of Formula One um, on a race weekend, is all the drivers going around on the back of a low loader or a lorry or a big truck, um, waving to the fans and being interviewed at the same time. And I got asked to do it um, in Bahrain in 2017. It was the first race I'd done on site for Formula One. I remember being asked and I remember them saying, um, was that a dude drivers parade yeah? And I was like, okay. Um, and will there be another camera crew presenter on the truck? And the guy, head of F1 like broadcasting at the time, looked at me like I'd come from another planet. He's like, no, it'll just be you and the camera. I was like, oh, okay. So it sounded and looked like I'd never watched the driver's parade before in my life. Like there was just going to be like an abundance of film crews all just like hanging off the truck trying to grab a word of the driver. But it was because I just couldn't believe that it was just going to be me yeah. and the cameraman. It was almost like, no, 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 because this is what I've dreamt of doing. And so you can't possibly <laughs> be offering me what I've always really wanted to do. Um, so that was a really lovely moment. Um, obviously, once I'd realised it was just going to be me, it was then fairly terrifying, but and I'd never really worked with an earpiece. So my first uh, job working with an earpiece, talking back to the director, the producer was on a truck that was vibrating a, a lot, <laughs> going up a hill to the first turn of our aid, interviewing Lewis Hamilton no big deal um, so yeah it was it was an amazing amazing opportunity so that's one that always stands out because that was my sort of first big moment for Formula One I say yeah, big moment for me I'm not saying it's like a huge moment for everyone else but it was a big moment for me um, and then subsequently you know just having the most amazing access you know suddenly on a Sunday morning being tapped on the shoulder was that sorry um you say Bolt's coming do you mind just quickly doing an interview <laughs> with him when he's um, doing a lap with Lewis Hamilton later yeah, just let me have five seconds fresh air for a moment while I rush <laughs> and just prepare myself for this. Um, so yeah, so there have been some incredible moments. Being driven by Lewis and interviewing him in Malaysia was amazing. Um, it's been, yeah, really just special thing after special thing. So I am very, very lucky. As you've just said there, it sounds like you've had amazing moments within your career and in particular with Formula One as well but you've also been involved in various other sort of projects experiences initiatives in particular relating to inspiring the next generation can you talk to us about those and what your role is and what you're involved with definitely so I have been involved with um earlier on probably more um, F1 in schools so that was something that I really wanted to get involved with because I just thought that was a fabulous initiative inspiring young children and students to embrace science, technology, engineering and math, something that I found really difficult and still do to this very day. I found it very difficult at school, didn't really engage with it. It was like my brain just couldn't kind of work out science and tech. So I just felt that this was such an amazing real world example for students to see, to work on creating a balsa wood car um, and engineer it and work together. And I thought that was something just, I love watching all the teams, the way they communicate with each other, the bond they seem to have. So F1 in schools um, and the primary schools as well, that was, that's been an amazing um, sort of initiative and activity I've been involved with over the last sort of, gosh, probably five or six years now. And then, I um, can't remember how many years ago it was exactly, but I spoke with Susie Wolf um, about Dare to be Different and I'd seen what they were doing and how the initiative was kind of progressing. And I just said, I'd really love to be involved, Susie, if there was ever any chance. So she said, send me an email and we'll, we'll kind of get things up and running. And so I've been involved with Dare to be Different, which is obviously now slightly morphed into Girls on Track UK. Um, and Dare to be Different was obviously the one that I've had the most experience with because Girls on Track is still fairly new um, as of 2020. And I just loved Dare to be Different. It was, um, and I know Girls on Track will be similar. It was just such a wonderful um, day. I don't know if you guys have spent time on one of these days, but you know, different activities. There's the media presenting bit with um, me and some of the Sky Sports um, presenters. And we work with the girls because it's mainly girls, but of course, definitely different could mean everybody and anybody. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Anyone is welcome. Um, and it was just amazing seeing the confidence that these girls and these students kind of gained throughout the course of 
a simple kind of eight nine hours of activities and there was you know um, first aid training so doing a bit of CPR doing some um, projects to kind of inflate a hovercraft type thing um, a bit of karting we're often at a kart track um, so Dare to be Different was something that I was really really passionate about and I'm equally as passionate about Girls on Track UK and we've had some lovely um, online sort of video calls with some of the ambassadors already, Jamie Chadwick, um, I've spoken with Nikki Shields from Formula E as well. So it's been, yeah, it's been lovely seeing how these initiatives have kind of grown and progressed over the last few years. And also it's just lovely seeing how all the students who are involved kind of grow and progress through the days that we spend with them as well. I've had the sweetest girls like in tears at the beginning of a day uh -huh. or the beginning of a workshop with me maybe it's just me but they're in tears and by the end like holding their hand and I'm like you can do this this is absolutely fine like, we'll just present together and suddenly they do it and you can just see their whole the body language like just changes their shoulders drop the tears stop which is always helpful and they just got a beaming smile and it's just it's contagious to see these people these children suddenly feeling like they can stand up a little taller shoulders back head up and I just hope that they can take that back to their schools and I just hope you know that, that that little seed that they might have kind of just planted with us might germinate into something truly special later on in their career when they're you know going for a job or having to stand up and pitch something um when they're in the working world that's what it's all about as well just planting that seed in in their heads when they're younger and giving them that little confidence boost Steph and I actually first met at a dare to be different event when we visited yep. oh. Williams and here we are now so we're a testament <laughs> exactly. to what the community can do yeah you never know it's where so it can lead yeah that's the thing I think um and you know it's been kind of really it's brought to the fore a little bit the communities that motorsport has within it yeah throughout lockdown it's so lovely to have those you know facebook pages where you can mm -hmm. get in touch with people i know a lot of you know in the esports world that's really come alive especially over during the course of 2020 and lockdown especially with you know Landon norris george russell um charlotte clerk dressed as banana um <laughs> such a different side of the drivers but also the f1 community just really sticking together and being there for each other and supporting each other and i know a lot of i've met a lot of fans um over the last few years in the fan forums um at events and it's so lovely seeing fans who have come to races specifically with each other and they the only reason that they're there together is because they've met online and i think that is just an amazing the, the power of online obviously there's negative too but that the positive is just amazing that's brought so many people together with a shared passion shared hobby and it's taking them around the world and, and it's probably getting getting jobs in, in the industry which i just find absolutely captivating yeah definitely as well it's been a, an amazing opportunity for us as well and i know that we have made huge networks and contacts with other people um within the organizations that we're part of as well so yes definitely to anyone listening who isn't already part of a community like girls on track or what was dare to be different definitely would recommend finding one that that you can relate to and, and joining it so many it's benefits not, it's not just for kind of students who are looking for an opportunity to work it's also people who just love the sport want to be yeah. involved and, and network and stuff so i think it's yeah, it's really important to, to welcome as many people as possible. So, yes, if you're listening and you think, oh, that sounds a bit of fun, um, then, yeah, definitely look it up. Girls on Track UK, definitely. It's all it's all going on there. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned the webinars, actually, um, sort of the video calls that you've been having over the course of the last few months with Girls on Track. Who has been the most inspiring person that you've spoken to so far? Well, I've, I've actually been lucky enough. I spoke to Nikki Shields um, for the UK one, and then I listened to Jamie Chadwick, and then I also did a link up with um, Australia's Girls on Track as well. So Motorsport Australia set up um, their version of it as well, and I spoke with Emma Nota Francesco, who's a presenter out there as well. And every single person, like when I listened to Lou interviewing Jamie, you know, Lou Goodman, um, so many different people with lots of different stories to tell and different skills. I think Jamie Chadwick, is someone that I just, I'm really intrigued just to see where her career and her journey takes her because I think she's obviously a huge talent and it would be wonderful to see her in F1. Of course, she won the yeah. W Series and now she's going to be an Extreme E and she's had such luck in 2020 and I don't mean luck as by like, oh, she's just locked out, but you know, she managed to keep her racing going through yeah. 2020, yeah. navigating that through different conversations and again, has really made her own luck in that sense. 
Um, so I really hope she can keep that momentum going and you know, working with the Williams team as well. I just hope that there'll be opportunities for her coming in the next few years. So yeah, listening to everyone's just different stories and Nikki and Formula E and you know, she's been working with Extreme E as well. Just interesting to hear how different people are, are kind of tackling the motorsport world. Um, and again, in Australia as much as in, in the UK as well. So staying on the topic of females in motorsport and also more generally underrepresented groups, but staying on the female side for a second while we're talking about girls on track, obviously Formula One and motorsport generally is a very male-dominated sport, but for some women that we've spoken to and in the podcast and off-air, the women have said that they've always been quite conscious of the fact that they are females in a very male-dominated sport and they're aware of the fact that they might have extra barriers because of that. Is that something that you personally experienced or were you always able to look past it and didn't see it as an issue and you're getting you're getting to where you're going either way? I think it's, it's such a personal thing, isn't it? Because it comes down perhaps to um, self-confidence and I'm mm-hmm. definitely not, although it might look like it, sound like it, seem like it. Um, might seem that I am a very confident person you know everyone's got their internal thoughts and struggles and worries and, and you know a little bit of nervousness or anxiety um I think how you approach working in the industry is totally personal but one thing I do feel is that I I never sort of wake up and think I am a woman I am working in motorsport I am Rosanna it's more <laughs> I'm Rosanna I work in motorsport I happen to be a woman I think that's the kind of order um, And I think if you dedicate too much bandwidth to walking around thinking I'm a woman, I'm a woman, Mm -hmm. I think that's almost wasted energy and intelligence because there's so much to do every day. There's so many amazing jobs. There's so much kind of just work that needs to be done and projects that need to be uh, achieved and solutions found. And if you're kind of thinking all the time, I'm a woman, that could trip you up in itself. So all I kind of think, whether it's naively or not, you know, I go into every project thinking, brilliant. I've got a team here. Everyone's been employed because they are the best of the best. And we are going to have an amazing time working together, getting the solutions to the problems or solving whatever we need to solve together, working together to put together a really great product. That's all I'm really interested in. Um, But I totally get that some people may find it daunting being a woman in a more uh, male dominated space, industry, whatever it might be. Um, And that. I can imagine would also be the case if it was a man walking into a room yeah. full of women. I'm sure that would be the case, but I'm probably certain. And I was talking to my brother about this that you know I said I don't I don't walk around thinking I'm a girl I'm a girl all the time. And he's and I said I don't do you th- do you walk around saying you're a boy you're a boy or a man, man? He's like no I don't. And I think that's where we probably need to get to to almost just think, and it's probably utopian, a little bit naive, but maybe just thinking everyone here is here because they've worked really hard, and yeah. you have to try and believe in that at this point because if we're aiming for meritocracy, that's kind of, you've got to set yourself in that way of thinking. Everyone's mm-hmm. here because they've worked hard to get here. And I assume and hope that everyone will be working hard today while we're all working together and we're all going to have the best time because we're all working hard, putting our own weight and creating something great that's going to be the output and the outcome. So I totally understand that people will feel that, you know, gosh, I am the only woman or I'm one of three or whatever it might be. Um, and that can be daunting. But I think if we're going to set in motion this new environment, this new way of working together, we've got to try and look past that and think, yeah. right, meritocracy, who's the best for the job? Who's the most talented? And if you're not working hard, you're going to get, get out. If you're working hard, preparing hard, showing up and delivering, you're in. And that's that's what it's got to come down to. But of course, there are many obstacles to overcome to get to that point. But I think that's how we've got to start thinking. We only want the best of the best. Yeah, absolutely. I think more more generally in society as well, we're obviously striving for equality. But how do you feel about the sort of perceptions and stereotypes that maybe women have faced in the past? And have you encountered any of these sort of biases in your career? No, I don't think I have, um, which is a bold statement <laughs> to go on record saying, but I don't think so. And I you know, I have to be super honest and say that perhaps I've been afforded more opportunities because I'm a woman at a certain time in history, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, perhaps people are looking for a man and a woman to present the show. Perhaps it's better for a woman in motorsport to be represented now to show that certain organisations are taking a step. So it is so difficult, I think, at the moment to work out sort of 
where and what the language and the conversation should be because I do feel that perhaps I have been afforded opportunity and I'm sure there'll be men out there saying well she only got it because she's a woman so there's we, there's a, a bit of a struggle at the moment I think in terms of the conversations that are going on um I haven't encountered as far as I I, I don't feel like I've seen it overtly or and it may be behind closed doors maybe they chose not to use me because I was a woman but I never knew of it mm-hmm. but equally I feel perhaps I I have been given opportunities because I'm a woman you never know um but I've never been made to feel less worthy um less valuable because I'm a woman or told I can't do it because I'm a woman if anything and again this could be some people might see this as negative but I feel I'm surrounded more often than not by male cameramen it's usually a lot of cameramen um and they look after me absolutely wonderfully and I couldn't feel safer happier when I walk into the camera garage is a lot of men but we are all friends and we have the best time and I don't stop laughing from the minute I enter that camera garage to the minute I leave it and some people might say oh but that's very stereotypical a man trying to look after a woman and stuff no I just think I'm looking after them as much as they're looking after me we're creating a lovely working environment and I have never felt threatened by any of their behavior or any of their conversations um and I must be very lucky because that is a great way to feel about going to work and I am not naive to think that um there are other people who are not having the same um experience so I I totally get that there will be people and I'm sure you've spoken to people on your podcast who have experienced that the negative side but at the moment I'm very very lucky to say that I have um have always had a lovely time so hopefully long may that continue yeah I hope it does and even when I came and visited Biggin Hill as well like you said I I felt like it was such a welcoming environment I wasn't thinking oh god like I'm a woman here it was it was so welcoming everyone was absolutely lovely and everyone really came together and was there to get the job done as you said it wasn't a thing of people oh well don't know if she's going to be capable of doing it everyone was getting stuck in and just doing their absolute best to produce what they were there to do and that's what it comes down to at the end of the day and as you touched on as well sometimes I think that we often get stuck in the rut of thinking how it can be negative that we're from an underrepresented group but sometimes there are positives and strengths that come from it and sometimes it's about reframing that and actually thinking you know what yeah I am from an underrepresented group but there's there's strengths in that too I can sort of use that as well to help me and to build my confidence and make me think I'm I'm definitely worthy of where I am because I've overcome those barriers to get here absolutely I think if um I know Formula One is a business but you know we're putting together a what I like to think is a fun entertainment platform Mm. um and I sort of forget the financial side of things but if it were (laughs) purely about about the finances at the end of every show but we know that having a diverse workforce creates better financial results and returns so if you were looking at it purely from a money-making exercise, it makes perfect sense. From a ideas perspective, it makes perfect sense. You want as many ideas as possible to come into your pool of ideas to create the best output product, whatever you might be selling. It might not be in Formula One or in broadcasting. You want as many people working on that. And then from a social side of things, I want to have the most fun possible. So I want as many different people <laughs> chatting to me. I don't want to just be talking to myself or a version of myself. That would be boring. So you want to have as many people. And I just think. Um, yeah, the, the diverse, the better. It's going to raise everyone's game. And I've been reading some amazing articles that, that talk about if you're preparing to pitch to or try to convince a group of people that are different to you, you are more likely to work harder in the preparation stages of that pitch or that proposal because you know you're going to encounter potentially some some pushback from people. You're going to have to try work harder to convince them to your way of thinking. And I think that's really interesting. So it means that automatically because you know you're not surrounded by like-minded people or people from the same background as you you're raising your game which hopefully means they're raising their game and so actually everyone's benefiting from a rising tide and I think that is where we need to get to 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 make sure that we've got lots of different ideas with people from everywhere from anywhere um and and that can only be a good thing that we get as many ideas into the pot and then you know hopefully then it also means that what we're creating is Um, amenable accessible for lots of people as well so that it's not a product that only suits one person it's got to try and suit as many people as possible Mm, absolutely I think with Formula One in particular if we look at it in terms of the technology and you know shaving those extra tents off those lap times it's all about problem solving Um, and so diversity of thought really comes into that and just shows what benefit and advantage that 
a diverse and a, a range of wide range of people in a workforce can bring to the sport but then also as you've said making it accessible as well for different audiences because again the fans is what makes the sport too definitely it's got to speak to as many people as possible mm. um and i think that you know there's the analogy of if you're building a car and it can be a formula one car you don't just have engineers you have mechanics and you have engineers from different departments the aero departments you have all different people coming together to build a car you wouldn't just have one sort of person one you know person with a certain expertise you've got to have lots of people and you can then take that extrapolate it out to the formula one world to the motorsport world automotive industry you need to have as many different people part of the process so that you 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 can build the car so to speak otherwise it's just going to have perhaps just one wheel that's no good to anybody <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah it's 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 a it's a difficult balance to strike you know it's it's difficult we're at a certain point in time mm-hmm. it's 2021 we shouldn't still really be talking about all of this it's almost I feel you know it goes back to that bandwidth thing of am yeah. I talking about being a woman too much you know we shouldn't be having to spend so much time talking about diversity and inclusion it should just be should just go without saying we should just have mm-hmm. the best people in the job we should have the most amount of people applying for that job from all different areas of the world different backgrounds everyone should be able to have an interest and then put themselves forward for different jobs in different industries and then the best can be taken from it but it's a shame that in 2021 it's still such a, a big topic because it really should be something that we just look past it should be you know done and dusted by now which is is it's unfortunate that here we still are in 2021 having to to focus on it yeah I think as well it's about enabling people to know that they can go for these opportunities and not think that they're you know there's barriers to entry um so I think that's quite a huge part of it too but hopefully one day we'll we will get past it and as you say um we'll move on and everything will be as we want it to be in terms of diverse and inclusive and equal etc relating to that how would you like to see the future of motorsport in relation to diversity well i think to pick up on your points about the you know getting enough people interested in it and i think this is where lewis hamilton has done such a great job with the hamilton sorry sir lewis hamilton i nearly forgot excuse me (laughs) sorry (laughs) sorry Um, with the Hamilton Commission. I think that is, he's spoken so powerfully and eloquently about what it's going to take. It's not a case of removing all of the people that are in these positions right Mm. now and saying, right, now we've got to put in um, people from the BAME community. There we go, damn dusted. No, 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 no. We've got to go, unfortunately, and this is where it's going to take time. And that's why the the results aren't going to happen overnight. It's going to take time because we've got to go to like the bottom of the, the issue, to the base of the pyramid, and we've got to address why, why are certain students not engaging with these subjects? Mm-hmm. Why is there a barrier to entry? What are the obstacles? What's stopping them from applying themselves in science, technology, engineering, and maths? Whether that's at school, whether it's applying then for a place at university, why are people thinking they're not welcome in certain industries? And that's what I really, really respect Lewis for doing because he's getting to the crux of the issue. It's not just, that's just let's just paint over this issue and we'll just, you know, we'll employ some people from some certain communities and then everyone can stop talking about this. It's going to take time, but I think it's the exact way to deal with it, go right to the grassroots so that in, you know, unfortunately we'll probably be in about 10 years time once those students from, you know, 10 years old to 20 years old are coming into the working world, then we'll hopefully see a difference, hopefully sooner, but it's just, um, it is that, it's the education. And so for me personally, I would love to see, many more students from different backgrounds finding an interest in science technology engineering maths and to be honest finding interest in anything that's the best thing it doesn't yes. have to be in stem it doesn't have to be in formula one or in motorsport just to be so engaged in their education i think there is a gap at the moment between the engagement a lot of children are not enjoying being in the classroom and that's another question why are they not enjoying being in the classroom why is it not real worldly enough why are they disengaged um, because i think once we start getting children engaged in their education that's when we really start cooking with gas because then you get people doing the jobs they love, trying to make a change in the world if you want to get really kind of out there. Um, so for Formula One, wouldn't it be wonderful if it reflected society more? And again, I think Formula One needs to slightly kind of nail down what that looks like because if you're trying to replicate the, you know, the 2011 census, for example, 87% white in the UK, 13% from the BAME communities. Do we want that percentage in the paddock? Do we want 50-50? Do we want just making sure all the applications had a range of backgrounds? We need to kind of work that out because I think you can't 
know where you're going unless you have mapped that out. And I think that's important because otherwise this conversation is going to run and run and run and run because we're never going to get to where we want it to be. I think unless you say, this is what we're aiming for, we've got to get there. It's just going to be slightly wishy-washy and we're never going to kind of really address the issue. Um, But I am really, you know, impressed sounds a bit condescending, but I'm really impressed with how Formula One, you know, we've got the We Races One, I think people are obviously now talking about it. We've got wonderful initiatives like you guys. It starts weirdly in so many places. It starts, you know, grassroots up, but actually with diversity and inclusion, it starts from the top. And I think when you get people like Lewis um, and people, you know, Ross Braun, Chase Carey, and of course, at least Fanny Domenicali, once they start talking about it, it will trickle down. And that's weird. It's sort of, it's reversed to how you think it should be, but actually it needs to come from the top. Um, and I think those conversations are being had. And I think We Races One shows that Formula One is heading in a direction. I think it just needs to be super clear about what the objectives are, because we need to get to a point where that bandwidth goes back to just full innovation, technology, advancing at its fast as it can possibly go at because that's what Formula One is all about Um, and so that essentially we don't need to keep on addressing diversity because it will already be included, pardon the pun, uh, within our community and the motorsport industry. What a brilliant episode to kick off season two. Rosanna took us right back and through her career and I really liked her looking back on it. She's recognized that each role or job that she has taken has played a part in the bigger picture, even though at the time they didn't feel like they were leading her in the right direction. It just goes to show that the pieces all fall into place at the end as long as you keep focused on the end goal and don't give up on it. Rosanna also spoke so highly of her broadcast journalism masters and although it is a creative career path and people often consider experience to be the most important thing, a formal education can also be a huge benefit, especially a course similar to the one that Rosanna took that offers hands-on experience as well as networking opportunities that helped her kickstart her career. Yeah, absolutely. And even her undergraduate degree in French and Spanish proved to be incredibly helpful and it actually even opened up opportunities that she may otherwise not have had. I definitely would recommend taking her advice on board about learning languages if possible, as motorsports and F1 especially is a global sport and languages can help give that extra something to help you set you aside and stand out from the crowd. 100% and on the diversity front, I think it's good to hear from those from underrepresented groups with all different experiences and I do believe it is important to hear the positive experiences as well as the negative. Because whilst of course there is work to be done and some people do have awful experiences, We can learn from the positive and use these as a foundation to build a safe and welcoming environment for all. I definitely agree there. And Rosanna did a great job of emphasising the need to really dig deep into the lack of diversity and ensuring we understand the root cause. And only then can we truly address it, which hopefully is exactly what we will see from F1 and motorsport more generally in the future. To catch Rosanna on socials and follow her behind the scenes once the season gets underway, find her at Rosanna Tennant. As for us, we've got a pretty exciting season two heading your way. So make sure you're following us on Instagram at wearedrivenbydiversity for the very latest. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed Rosanna's chat. We'll be back next Tuesday with another great episode. <laughs>